The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Justin Sink's going to give us the latest on what the White House is saying on the Russia bounty. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Fed Chair Jay Powell warning of extraordinary uncertainty. We've got an entire financial services preview for the week ahead. And folks, it's going to be a busy four-day week in Washington especially as Powell, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, all get set to report to Congress and the Fed Minutes. Let's not forget about that. U.S. cases rising 1.2%. The worst is yet to come. Wow. That according to the World Health Organization. I'm still an optimist. Beautiful day here, folks, in Washington, D.C. I wish the news was as good. Uh, Joining us on the line, my colleague Justin Sink. Justin is Bloomberg's White House reporter. Justin, we've got a lot to get through. Let's first get to the Russia bounty reports, because that's all anybody's been talking about. Uh, Mr. Lena Agolfa-Palulu and Justin Sink reporting on the Bloomberg terminal. President Donald Trump wasn't briefed on reports that the Russian government paid bounties for American and allied troops to be killed in Afghanistan because there was no consensus among intelligence officials on the veracity of the claims. This according to White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany. Justin, what else do we know tonight? Well, we know that uh, a group of Republican lawmakers went to the White House today and and was briefed on it. They've come out and largely echoed what we heard from the White House today, which is that there doesn't seem to be a consensus around this intelligence that was reported over the weekend in the New York Times and the Washington Post, although uh, they certainly haven't gone as far as the president who, you know, referred to this in a tweet as a potential uh, another Russia hoax. so, yeah. you know, while while Republicans are a little skeptical, we're going to hear from Democrats who are going uh, tomorrow morning to the White House right. for a similar briefing of their own. And, and so we'll learn more of that. Justin, I have to interrupt you because there's breaking news just within the last 60 seconds. U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross releasing a statement saying that Hong Kong's special status has been revoked. Again, Hong Kong's special status has been revoked. Breaking news, redhead crossing the Bloomberg terminal from the Commerce Department. Secretary Ross saying in a statement, quote, with the Chinese Communist Party's imposition of new security measures on Hong Kong, the risk that sensitive U.S. technology will be diverted to the People's Liberation Army or Ministry of State Security has increased, all while undermining 
the territory's autonomy. Secretary Ross says that regulations affording preferential treatment to Hong Kong over China, including the availability of export license exceptions, are now suspended. Quote, further actions to eliminate differential treatment are also being evaluated. Jesteri said here, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross saying in a statement that Hong Kong's special status has been revoked. Uh, this just coming in moments ago. Now, last week, the Senate had passed a bipartisan measure uh, uh, by but bipartisan measure that would essentially uh, make it easier for the United States to sanctions members of the Communist Party who do and, and Chinese officials who do business with the Communist Party that back the so-called national security measures that the Communist Party of China was advancing in result in 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 effect to uh, really limit the independence uh, of of Hong Kong. So there you go, Justin. I mean. Wow. Um, somewhat expected, the timing of which I don't know uh, if that was as expected, but some major developments tonight. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the president telegraphed this possibility when he spoke about China earlier this month. He, he obviously, I think, was responding to uh, the efforts uh, in China to push forward new security laws in Hong Kong. But this has been a long simmering dispute and, and something that the Trump administration has really had a hard time uh, Wayne, because on the one hand, um, I think they've wanted to respond to the actions that China has taken uh, to limit sort of democracy and free speech in Hong Kong. On the other hand, we know, uh, and the president has admitted himself, that he's really tried to um, avoid antagonizing Beijing as they work to implement this major trade deal and, and to keep that going. And so we're seeing as the political pressure ratchets, ratchets up on the president that that they are starting to take more aggressive actions. Of course, we're going to be interested in how exactly this is implemented and, and what the sort of real-world effects of it are, but it does show that, that the president is feeling some of that pressure to to go after China, and it all is set against the backdrop of, of course, the election in a couple months and, and wanting to make the case that he has been tougher on China than, than Joe Biden was during his eight years as vice president. You know, it is remarkable. The American Chamber of Commerce released a survey in June or this month, uh, June of 2020, and they asked uh, 180 Hong Kong based members, a part of the American Chamber of Commerce. What are your top concerns about the passing of Hong Kong's national security law? 63% answered that it jeopardizes Hong Kong's international business center status. That was a concern prior to this announcement coming tonight from the Commerce Secretary that the U.S. has now says that Hong Kong's special status is going to be revoked. Meanwhile, contrary to international peers, more and more mainland Chinese companies have been opening office in offices in Hong Kong. Uh, this according to the Hong Kong Census and Statistics Department as put out by a data composition last week from Bloomberg. Now, I want to go back to this bipartisan measure because it's one thing for the administration to say that Hong Kong's special status is revoked. It's an entirely different next level escalation. Justin Sink, Bloomberg White House reporter, for the president to sign into law the bipartisan measure making its way through Capitol Hill, which would essentially um, make it 
uh, e easier for the U.S. to sanction officials in China who support the Communist Party of China's national security laws. Last week, I interviewed Congressman Michael McCall. He's a Republican from Texas, top Republican on House Foreign Affairs, and he told me he's going to try to persuade the president to do so. Is the president going to sign that legislation into law to take this one step further, or do we not know? Uh, the White House hasn't said yet, but what we've seen in the past, for instance, I think just about a month ago with this uh, bill that would have done the same thing or does the same thing uh, in retaliation for, uh, you know, steps that they've uh, that China's taken against the Uyghur ethnic population. The White House uh, hasn't actually vetoed any of those measures. So what we normally see is that the president will sign the measures. But then if he's trying to maintain better relations with China, potentially slow walk the actual implementation of new sanctions going forward. But again, you know, I think the president at this point is trying to signal a tougher approach towards China, especially because of frustration over Hong Kong, over the coronavirus and China's handling of that, uh, frustration over them not living up to the obligations of the trade deal. And so, you know, we've seen a real sort of pivot in terms of tone and tenor from the White House in recent weeks. All right. Justin Sink, uh, Bloomberg White House reporter, thank you for coming on to break down all of that news. Again, I just want to read more of the statement coming from the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. With the Chinese Communist Party's imposition of new security measures on Hong Kong, the risk that sensitive U.S. technology will be diverted to the People's Liberation Army or Ministry of State Security has increased, all while undermining the territory's autonomy. Those are risks that the U.S. refuses to accept and have resulted in the revocation of of Hong Kong's special status. Commerce Department regulations affording preferential treatment to Hong Kong over China, including the availability of export license exceptions, are suspended. Further actions to eliminate differential treatment are also being evaluated. We've got every angle covered. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. News never stops. News literally never stops, folks. Wilbur Voss making news tonight, revoking Hong Kong's special status. How to rip up the script, as Tom Keene says, a good friend, my mentor, Tom Keene, the legendary Rip the script up. Let's. Uh, we're going to come back to Russia and the bounty, the bounty, the Russia bounty, uh, with our panelists, our political panelists, uh, coming up later in the show. Uh, and I can tell you what I'm hearing from the left and the right in terms of how they're breaking it down behind the scenes, because it comes back to this whole debate with regards to uh, how intel, how the intel community advises and briefs the president, and what. It uh, what makes the way its way inside of the Oval Office and what does not. Uh, so we're going to dive into that uh, coming up with our with our political panelists. But first, let's get to the Supreme Court because there were some more cases today, folks, some more cases. And joining us on the line is Greg Store, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter. The Supreme Court, Greg, backed president's power to fire the CFPB director. I want to start with that. Let's get wonky and then we'll we'll go out. All right. So so the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you know, this is something Mick Mulvaney was the acting director, remember? Mm -hmm. He was the acting director 
and a divided U.S. Supreme Court said that the president has broad power to fire the director of the CFPB. This is interesting because he nixed or he 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 if flashback he fired who the progressive who was at the helm of it when he took office and put Mick Mulvaney in place. Remember, Mick showed up with the donuts and it was all of this, you know, exciting political drama. But the Supreme Court's saying that the president can fire who he wants at the CFPB. Yes, this this is a little bit complicated, but the, the CFPB was set up to have a director that was independent. And the idea was we don't want this person being uh, swayed by politics, by banks and, you know, contributions and stuff like that. Um, and so they put these protections in that said, you know, the director can only be fired for certain reasons. And um, the argument was that that violates the Constitution and the separation of powers because uh, a big agency like this has to be accountable to somebody, uh, uh, namely the president. And so what the Supreme Court today said was we're going to toss out those, those job protections for the director, which means the president can fire the director for any reason. I do want to, Kevin, if I could, just tweak something you said a moment ago. The, when Trump took office, the director of the CFPB was Richard Cordray, yeah. who then left under his own on his own accord to run for governor of, of Ohio, and that let Donald Trump uh, put Mick Mulvaney in there. Uh, but wasn't there like effort. a? But wasn't there someone else who was saying that she was the director, and they had like that whole turf war, right? <laughs> Oh, they did. They, they did have that turf war when when Cordray was leaving. Uh, in terms of who was going to be, you're you're correct about that. In terms of who was going to be, because um, uh, Mick in brought charge. donuts. <laughs> I remember this. I was talking to sources over there, and I said, "Well, did you get a donut today?" And they were saying, "Oh, you know, they're progressive. They're not That's progressive." Right. It was this whole litmus test. Not to get wonky, but you know, I do love <laughs> to get into the weeds of the financial services. And and Elizabeth Warren, mind you, actually, when she wanted to, she the brain the brain the CFPB is the brainchild of. Senator Warren, slow down, Kevin. You're too excited about this nerdy stuff. But she created this. She was the one who who created this. And she actually originally wanted it to be a commission-based and then ultimately changed her mind. And now the CFEB is director-based and it could have been set up like the SEC or some of the other agencies, but, you know, now it's not. So this is fascinating and a major win for conservatives in terms of the direction of the CFPB, uh, which is something that Senator Warren at the time when she wanted to create this had wanted it to be a little bit more independent. And I, yeah. I believe if I'm if I'm correct, they get their funding from the Federal Reserve and not from yeah. Congress. And so they wanted it to be independent. But this is kind of now like a muddled area with the president being able to, to fire them. Right. Yeah, now let me throw a curveball at you, if I could. Yes. So the, the current director is Kathy Craninger, who was yep. appointed by Donald Trump. She's been on the program what, several times. <laughs> what this means is that if Joe Biden wins in November, now Joe Biden will have the, the power to fire Kathy Craninger without any, any explanation, just to, to put in his own person. So at least in the near term, this may actually be something that helps Democrats because they won't be stuck with this holdover Trump appointee in, in this post. It's fascinating. And Christine Barad, our executive producer, is like, only you would get this excited about a Supreme Court <laughs> case on the CFPB. It's a great, it's a great case. 
case, Christine. It, thank you. You hear that, Barada? <laughs> Greg Storr, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter, says it's a great case. Let's talk about the other big case that's making right. national headlines, and that's the abortion rights reinforced as Supreme Court voids the Louisiana law. A divided U.S. Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana law that opponents said would have left the state with only one abortion clinic in a surprise reinforcement for women's reproductive rights. I'm reading from your report on the Bloomberg Terminal. Why was this a surprise decision? It's a surprise because the pivotal vote, John Roberts, was a guy who four years ago voted to uphold a virtually identical law in uh, Texas. Uh, the Supreme Court disagreed with him. He was in dissent. And today he said, even though I still think I was right back then, I'm going to go along with that precedent of the court, and I'm going to vote to strike down this Louisiana law because of this this uh, notion of stare decisis, which means that the court generally uh, will leave its, its past rulings intact. It's the first time John Roberts has voted to uh, uh, on the side of abortion rights. It continues a pattern we've seen this term with him uh, on a number of big cases joining the court's liberals and, uh, you know, really gave the abortion rights side a victory that I think not a lot of them would have guessed they were going to get coming into this case. Why did Chief Justice John Roberts decide the way that he did? What was his argument? Well, his argument was it's the exact same law. Uh, it, it, it's virtually identical, and it has the same, maybe even a, a bigger burden on women who want to get an abortion, because as, as you said, uh, it, it would, opponents said it would leave Louisiana with only one clinic, and that's what a federal district judge found, too. Um, and, you know, he, he said this, we're not being asked to overturn Roe v. Wade and the Casey decision that upheld Roe v. Wade. Um, and in these circumstances, he said, uh, stare decisis is the way to go. Uh, it remains yeah. to be seen what he's going to do in future cases. But Right. We're going to have to leave it there. Okay. Greg Storr, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter. Thanks for uh, talking about those cases with us. More next with our political panel. You don't want to miss this. We have a lot to get through, folks. I'm Kevin Cerulli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Did you see the sign? Are you looking for a sign? You know, I got this plaque from uh, my parents, actually, that says never, never, never give up. I like it. All right. Joining us on the line is Lauren Claffey. She is president of Claffey Communications. She's also now at Hamilton Place Strategies. Right, Lar? Hi. How are you? It's been a minute since we've talked. How has your pandemic been? 
Oh, it has been quiet and full of house projects, which I feel like is most people. You know what? I like to say that I can I can bring on my inner Magnolia fixer upper. You know what I'm saying? What was your uh, <laughs> What was your best go to fixer upper that you did the, the house project that you can share with us? We actually just bought an old house, so we've been repainting okay, nice. all of it. Yeah, and so um, learning how to strip strip sixty year old paint has been uh, has been quite satisfying. Well, that's been fun because my AC went over the weekend. <laughs> so, oh my god, did you fix it? I tried. You know, I tried, but uh, you know, it's a it's a it's an opportunity. I'm gonna get real stoic for a second. Uh, it, it's it's an opportunity to practice patience, right? And to sweat. You know, it's a hot one. And to sweat. I was about to say. I mean, a lot of people pay a lot of money to go to steam rooms. Sweat all of their toxins out. Just come to my condo. Went on ahead and did it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there are bigger problems in the world. All right, let's talk about the breaking news tonight. Did you see this? Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross revoking the independence trading status of Hong Kong. I know that you've got uh, deep, deep ties uh, to. uh, You know, you were the. You formerly worked at the Department of Homeland Security uh, and the House Homeland Security Committee uh, for Republicans. So tell me, what do you make of, of the Hong Kong news? I mean, to me, this is just another step in uh, kind of the escalation between uh, the U.S. and China, right? We've kind of seen all of these moves um, slowly taking place. And I'm glad that the administration did something, though, to finally push back a little bit more aggressively. We haven't heard too much about um, their reaction to um, China's proposal to uh, take away kind of the independence of Hong Kong and uh, the the democratic um, status that they have within the country. And so I think this and a couple of, you know, and hopefully some more aggressive sanctions will kind of put China on notice a little bit as much as possible. You know, um, I really feel for the Hong Kong folks to taste freedom and democracy and then have that yanked away by an aggressive Beijing um, is really not a good look. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see whether or not the president signs into law some of those financial services pieces of legislation that have bipartisan support up on Capitol Hill. Uh, let's pivot now to the other big story of the day. And I really do want you I want to get your take on this, but I also want to get your your experience on this, because the Russia bounty story, Lauren, has been dominating the, the national press in terms of whether or not the president was briefed on intelligence reports that uh, says that there was a price on U.S. soldiers or or that Russia placed a bounty on on U.S. soldiers uh, serving. The administration denies this. How does the president get briefed on intelligence? Because Republicans are saying that this was a strategic leak by certain sources in the intel world and that it had not made its way inside of the Oval Office. Yeah, you know, The intelligence, you have to think of intelligence sometimes as rumors. We're gathering, uh, especially human intelligence, right, that, you know, that we're acquired through kind of word of mouth or through relationships. There's a lot that goes into verifying the intelligence and making sure that it's actually true. And so by the time it's reaching the presidential briefing book, that has had to go through so many different layers. And also the presidential briefing book is compiled by uh, the intelligence agency based on the president's priorities. So things that he's looking at, worrying about, decisions he needs to make that day. They try to keep it very brief and, as most classified information, need to know. A lot of people think that the president is getting 
all-encompassing briefings at all times, and he must know everything that's happening. And that's just simply not the case. Um, however, if this had been true, and it's looking more and more that it's probably unverified intelligence, um, if it had been true, you would have hoped that the president would have been briefed on it. It is also worth noting, though, that you know Marco Rubio even said this today. It's very common for our adversaries to work through pro- proxies in order to attack our troops or our interests abroad. So it would not be surprising that Russia would be asking for bounties on American troops or trying to uh, attack American soldiers in Afghanistan, especially as we're withdrawing and and as they um, fight for dominance in the region. So, you know, I think that while it's horrible and shocking and you would want the U.S. to very aggressively um, fight back if that was the case, it's also uh, something that happens quite frequently. And if it wasn't verified, it would not have made it all the way to the presidential briefing bug. So... I think that's really important because I think in this day and age and and folks, regardless of whether it's a Republican in the administration or a Democrat in the administration, what we've learned is that leaks coming from the intelligence world, lower level at the at the agencies anonymously has been politicized. Is that an objective statement, Lauren Claffey? I mean, I think so, but <laughs> I also have noticed that I the think culture it is. of I mean... leaks, yeah, the, cult- the intelligence community has a real problem with culture of leaks right now. And I think that- Can I interrupt? Because I got to is... I I interrupt. I'm sorry. And I apologize yeah. for interrupting because it's not polite <laughs> and I was raised better. However, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the intelligence world. I think it's the lower level staffers at the agency's world that has a problem with leaking. I don't think the people who are actually in the know on either side are leaking personally. Am I wrong? You may be right about that. Thank I mean, you. I've seen it come in a couple of different places. So I do think that the agencies have a problem. I do think that the intelligence community often has a problem. And again, I mean, you get these inf- this information that you think is a big deal but isn't verified. And, you know, at that point, it's still hearsay. It's still rumors. Like, you can't act on it. So to leak it and make it fact is a real problem. So, okay, so from a political standpoint, now put on your political cap, this hurts the president's reelection efforts, just given, again, the consistent type of drumbeat of what's going on in the president's relationship with Russia. He cannot turn. He cannot, for whatever reason, his campaign is it, it seemingly is struggling right now. And this is just the latest now foil, so to speak, in, uh, that's out there. Yeah, you know, I don't know that this is a nail in the coffin, per se. Yeah, but yeah I wouldn't. Yeah. Definitely. I, don't, I want to clarify. You know, that's is- not what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, but I think, I mean, to your point, they have had a trouble with messaging and controlling the message um, from the get-go here. I mean, the coronavirus has completely thrown them. Then you add Black Lives Matter movement to it. I mean, they've had a really bad couple of months, and they have not been able to regain control of the conversation. And I think this, I mean, this news cycle, this was multiple days over the weekend, and this really kind of put them on their hind time feet again, um, you know, to start the week off when they're trying desperately to reset the campaign 
and this also is coming on the heels of bad poll numbers. So, you know, I think that every time that they have to spend fighting these types of stories is a day that they're not getting to push their own message. And you never want to be on defense when you're running a presidential campaign, especially Trump, who is um, has kind of touted that he can control the narrative, control the media. I mean, he is kind of a master manipulator in that way. And he's not doing it right now. So what would you advise the campaign to do? You know, for me, and this is not going to happen because I think they have a principle that doesn't like to stay on message, but they really need to boil down their core messages and White House policy needs to reflect it as well. And I think the campaign is out doing one thing with a lot of their social um, media targeting and um, outreach. And then you have the White House, who's driving the news of the day, for the most part, doing something completely different. And they really, really need to hone in on, you know, a national security strength, a domestic strength, and an economic strength. And they really don't have a lot to show for that at this point. Lauren Claffey, breaking it all down for us on a host of different host of different issues and giving us an update on her home improvement projects. You know, it's uh, it's all relative, folks, as we all work from home and navigate it. Laura, thanks so much for uh, for coming on seriously and giving us your expertise. That's Lauren Claffey of Hamilton Place Strategies. She's worked on the House uh, in Republican circles and, of course, at the Department of Homeland Security as well. Very appreciative of her. More next. I'm Kevin Cirillo on Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and, excuse me, and radio. And we're covering all things Hong Kong tonight as well as what's been going on with Russia. But now let's get back to the 2020 race. And I am thrilled to do that with our next guest. I believe it's her first time on the program. It is her first time on the program, and we're very excited to have her on uh, and to talk about all of this. Uh, and her name is Laura Fink. She is a Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Reb- Rebel Communications in San Diego. Are you in San Diego? I sure am, Kevin. I'm very jealous. You know, my AC busted, so it's like real hot and humid in my condo, but I uh, I would love to be out on a beach in San Diego, if I do say so. Is it as beautiful as I'm imagining it, Laura? Our calling card is correct, and we are, you know, have the most perfect weather, and are, we're one of the most beautiful cities in the world. All right, rub it in, Laura. Rub it in. All right. <laughs> What's going on with, okay, so I was talking about this with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Television earlier today on Bloomberg Surveillance, and we have been reporting on this dynamic of how President Trump wants to make this a choice election, and the Biden campaign wants to make this a referendum election, and that's why we're not seeing or hearing as much nationally, so to speak, from the former vice president. When you have conversations with your Democratic friends and sources, is that what you're gathering as well? I think that's right. And I think part of it is, you know, I think 
Trump is, is once again trying to defy political gravity, which many would argue he's done in the past. Uh, but but incumbents are always face a referendum on their leadership. It's sort of the natural way of political elections and particularly polarizing incumbents, which we have in President Trump. So I, I think he would like it to be a choice election because it, it might level the playing field more than we currently see in the numbers we're looking at across the board. But inherently and historically, this is a referendum on whoever is the incumbent in office. So I, that's what I want to get at, though, because the, when when Trump was leading Biden, it was back in about February, January, or when that was the expectation that this was going to be a much closer race. And it was when Biden was debating and in a bruising primary. You expect that in, in, on any cycle, any side, uh, when there is a primary, it's going to be heated and, and whatnot. Now, He's been able to, to duck down a little bit uh, from the national headlines. But once the debates start, is it a risk that he's not out there right now defining himself before the barrage of Republican attacks start to be lobbed in his direction? One of the advantages that, that Joe Biden has inherently is he's well known to the American people. He, he, we're not talking about a, a new candidate that they would be getting to know. And so he really is able to lay low and to allow Trump to proceed on the national stage. And in this case, it looks like his declining poll numbers show a lot of disapproval of his performance. So essentially, their campaign strategy is, you know, let Trump be Trump. And in fact, that serves Biden quite well. You know, a lot of critics would say, well, Biden is hiding out or he's in the basement. Well, I would say this. He's beating Trump right now in most <laughs> of the polls from that basement. And and so th right now, I think that the watchword for the Biden campaign is prepare because they know that the onslaught is coming. They know that this will be a difficult race no matter what the polling numbers say. And I, I believe he is a Boy Scout and the scout, that is the scout motto to be prepared. So I, I, I think that that's, that's the watchword for Biden. And for Trump, it's simply stop the bleeding. I mean, right now, he knows that his disapproval numbers are high. His approval number is, is at a historic low for his presidency. And he has to turn that around to become competitive so that states like Georgia, uh, he doesn't need to run commercials in and, and to, to fight for, uh, sue in states for Republicans on most years. So that's, the, that, that's where the winds are blowing right now. So let me ask you about your senator. Kamala Harris, is she going to be the Veep? Is she going to be the vice presidential pick? Oh, you know, aren't predictions so 2016, darling? I know. I, you know, I, <laughs> I hear you, but I gotta, I gotta ask it because you're, you're, you know, you're out in San Diego, you're on the West Coast, and I, you know, and I'm like, what, what's the, what's the word around town in, in your circles about Kamala Harris? Is how's she gonna, how's she gonna take the uh, criminal justice reform issue? Is this like an audition for the, for the Veep Stakes? Well, I, I truly think that she was well positioned prior to uh, George Floyd protests hitting our streets and the the the, the nationwide and worldwide push for racial justice. Tell that um, to Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> no comment. So I think uh, I know, but I, I think she had this thing when she was attorney general and kind of running up through the ranks. And I'm not sure how long it's been one of her campaign mottos, but it's, she had a, a turn of phrase where she said smart on crime. And I think that, you know, we could she's always been good on issues of justice and understanding kind of where the American people were at and understanding the, the nuts and bolts of law enforcement and where the levers are. I think that with her, her particularly strong response 
response, her her wanting to to, to pursue criminal justice reform, her being a leader on it prior to uh, the events of this year, puts her in a very good place to take a leadership position. Not only that, and we we also can't discount that she ran a pretty uh, a pretty strong presidential campaign that I think ended a little bit too soon. So that puts her in a good good position. And I will say she's my favorite, um, both personally and in terms of the the horse race for or the veep stakes. Uh, so but I, there are obviously many other quality contenders. I mean, Stacey Abrams would be amazing. Val Demings is strong. Well, that's who I want to uh, ask Susan about Wright. you. I want to I want to ask you about Val Demings because she's someone that I don't think has the national profile in the sense that I think she's largely unknown. But here in Washington D.C. and in covering Congress for the last eight years, she's very well known and she's she's seen as as a force of sorts in the House of Representatives and someone who is a very serious person, a serious legislator, not someone who runs for the microphone, so to speak, that we see on both sides of the aisle. What else do we know about Congresswoman Val Demings? Well, I think her she had a star turn during the impeachment proceedings, yeah. which in her mind wasn't chasing that microphone, but certainly the gravitas that she displayed as a law enforcement uh, official, a former law enforcement official and someone who took the law, took the law very seriously. She also had a very sort of um, accessible approach. You know, she, you had Adam Schiff and the other lawyers sort of pursuing it from a very legal uh, perspective, but she has a way of talking in the same sort of having that sort of same knowledge of the law, but really break Breaking it down so that, you know, people like me can understand it. So if you're a non-lawyer, you can understand what it was. And, and so I think her, her ability to communicate on that level is compelling. She just has nerves of steel and I think um, w- would, would certainly do well on the national stage. It really is. Rem- I, I think she would be. It's going to be interesting to see the differences between Congresswoman Val Demings, Florida's 10th district, representing a state that is a key battleground uh, versus someone like Senator Kamala Harris, who is more of a national uh, uh, figure, but also from a state that likely Democrats are going to win. We've got like a minute left, but I want to ask you, what about Elizabeth Warren? We have not heard a lot about Elizabeth Warren, who up until you know, during the primaries was somebody who was very much like an Amy Klobuchar, but who has dropped out of that, but very much on the Veep, on the Veep list. Absolutely. I mean, like her, I mean, and it also shows how much environmental dynamics play into this. There's only one Veep slot and a ton of contenders that are extraordinarily qualified. And Elizabeth Warren would be a phenomenal vice president. I voted for her. She would be a phenomenal president. I think, uh, though, the, the, the fact that race and racial justice continues to be the number two issue, even in the face of the economic uh, stress and the pandemic, the number two issue in the minds of the vast majority of voters right now means we need someone who has a track record and who actually looks like America. I think representation matters. And I think having a woman of color on the ticket uh, certainly is incredibly important right now. Laura Fink, Democratic strategist out in San Diego. Laura, that was fun. Thanks for coming on. Come back anytime, all right? Loved it. Thank you. And tomorrow we're going to have continuing coverage of the economy and Hong Kong. That's it for Monday. Short work week, 4th of July weekend. What are you doing to give back? What are you doing to serve to honor our country? Let me know. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cutter